The funny thing about hatred is that the price of entry is stupidity. This is my conversation with Victor Vernado. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. With me today on Truth Tastes Funny is Victor Vernado, comedian, producer, filmmaker. He's created and produced for Comedy Central, for True TV, VH1, and Nerdist. His writing's been in Vice. It's been on Salon. It's been in Marvel Comics. And his cartoons are in The New Yorker and in Mad Magazine, one of my favorite magazines, the first magazine that I ever read religiously. As a comedian, he's appeared on Jimmy Kimmel Live and Late Night with Conan O'Brien. And his book, The Anti-Racism Activity Book, has been completed and is now available. Welcome to Truth Tastes Funny, Victor. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. It's my pleasure to welcome you. I say this when I have, you know, comedians on. And so I'm a, I'm a stand-up comedian myself. I write quite a bit of humorous material, often in the branding space. But still, I don't have, you know, like an influx of comics and comedy writers on this show. Uh-huh. And where I think we're going to have a good time today is that it's a cross-section here of, you know, surviving and thriving and then also having a sense of humor about it. So let's start there if we could. And let me know when you first discovered your sense of humor and what it meant for you. (laughs) Well, like many people, I think I really came into my own in junior high and high school, (laughs) humor wise. Uh Yeah. But it was definitely as a form of protection. You know, being a black kid with albinism, you know, kids would tease me. And so like white kids would tease me, black kids would tease me. Because I was basically different from everybody. Right. And so luckily, I developed a quick wit, which made me popular and allowed me to survive. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was, and I guess I think about it around the same time, because I was small. I was, you know, short. And I think more than anything, I also was self-conscious about that. You uh-huh. know, So I think I had to come up with a way that wasn't physical to overcome, you know, bullies and tough people. And it seemed like, you know, being a smart ass was always, you know, you were taking a risk, but relative to the risk of being, you know, pushed around, what, you know, it's worth it if you get out of it in one piece. And what about writing in particular, the medium of writing? Uh, Well, I have always been a writer since I was young, since I was even in elementary school, I used to love to write stories, poetry, plays as well. When I went to high school, I continued to write plays. I even got a scholarship for playwriting. And so I've just been a dyed-in-the-wool writer, I think, since I was very, very young. I was an avid reader, too. I used to read a lot of science fiction. That was my jam back in the day. Like I would dig into crazy science fiction and a lot of weird stuff too. There are a couple of books, series that I read. Have you ever heard of the Xanth novels? I don't think so. No. 
by an author named Pierce Anthony. And the first book is called A Spell for Chameleon. It's a great book. They get worse as they move forward. It's a series. And <laughs> as the series goes forward, the books get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Well, my oldest son is a writer, but he is an avid sci-fi fan. And uh -huh. at the same time has, you know, a very fun kind of strange imagination, like the quirky humor. And I see, I guess that goes hand in hand. You know, for me, it was like Douglas Adams, you know, Restaurant at the Edge of the Universe, that book I remember reading uh -huh. and just saying like, oh, wow, sci-fi can be really weird and funny. It's not, uh, it's, and also Star Trek, which is just a strange kind of amalgam of, you know, sci-fi elements and camp. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. It was an interesting marriage. So professionally, where did things come together for you? Well, it's a, it was a long, weird journey. Yeah. First of all, I started out professionally in high school. I was doing mostly artwork and I had a couple of exhibits of my work and then I sold a couple of pieces. But then right after high school, I really started doing improv because I really got into improv. I thought it was hilarious. And then improv led me to stand up. I did stand up once when I was in high school, then never again. And that was mostly improv and sketches. And then when I came to New York, when I was about 27, that's when I started doing stand up again. I was going to ask you where it was that you were in high school, where you were. Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. And so what brought you to New York? I came to New York to quote unquote, make it to, to make do my it. thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And so what was the first avenue that you chose in New York? When I came to New York, I immediately got involved in the New York performance art scene. There was a place called Surf Reality, which is really famous for performance art. And also another place back in the day, Bowery Poetry Club was really famous for performance art. And I performed with like a lot of crazy just people who were very, very talented and, and of varying levels. So at Bowery Porridge Club, there was a famous open stage that was like on Monday nights and it was called Show and Tell. And it was run by these two women, Tanya Ritchie and Diane Langan, who called themselves the Odebra twins. And they dressed in fishnet stockings and American flag hot pants and they hosted the show and at the show so many great people came by the show all the time jonathan ames would come by the show jim gaffigan had been by the show a lot uh just like a ton of people and it was just a great place to like really hone your craft as a performer that was just an amazing community to hone your performance and then after that soon after that i got my first big acting gig like, and that came kind of like out of the blue. Oh, okay. Well, tell me what that was. What was the break? Well, I love to dance. And I used to go out to nightclubs and dance with the ladies. Yeah. And one time when I was dancing, a guy walked up to me and he said, hey, I'm casting for a music video and we need people who have fair complexion for this music video. And I was like, sure, cool. And then, because it was the first thing I had gotten in New York City. And yeah. then so when I got the music video, when they gave me all the information, like a couple of days later, it was for an Elton John music video. 
Yeah. And then the music video was called Recover Your Soul. Like if you search for it online, you can find it. I'm in it. Okay. I play an angel. I'm wearing only a loincloth and wings. And so when I got in that music video, the director of that music video went on to get a big directing gig and he remembered me. And then so he asked me if I would be willing to be in his next movie, which I auditioned for and I got the role. And that was End of Days with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> oh, wow. End <laughs> right? of Days. Oh, so who was the director? Well, the director at the time, the director of the video and the director when I was hired on the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger was Marcus Nispel. Ah, oh, like a... I know Marcus. Oh, okay. There you go. So Marcus <laughs> yeah. Nispel was the director. But then he got fired from End of Days. Right. And that was one of his first films. And apparently he didn't want to show them the dailies because he was an auteur. And then right. they were like, well, goodbye. And so they put in Peter Hyens instead, which was uh -huh. who was the director for cinematography for right. Marcus at the time. Right. Okay. I do kind of remember this. At this, sometimes you reach a point where you remember. Like, I'll remember some information, arcane information that has nothing to do with me, but has to do with the film industry or, you know, I worked, I worked, um, I still do. I, I did a PR for a lot of people in commercial production. And that's where I met Marcus. He collaborated with my clients quite a bit. Yeah, he's fantastic. And it's, you know, but there's always an interesting clash that happens when commercial filmmakers meet movie studios. You'd think it would be a marriage made in heaven, but it doesn't always work out because in the commercial filmmaking space, it's really the director is given a lot of stature and control. And even if they don't get final cut of it, they're still, their vision is highly regarded. In movie studios, it's a, sometimes a little bit different. What was it like working with Arnold? Uh, that was great. It was shocking, actually, <laughs> because I went from never having met giant stars to working along giant stars one after another. Yeah. Elton John was very strange to meet. And also Arnold Schwarzenegger was very strange because he's like a living toy in a way. Like he, in my mind, was the Terminator, you know? Yeah. He wasn't like a real person, like somebody you might meet at the bodega. And so working with him was just a crazy it was just a crazy experience because it was like if mickey mouse was real and talking to you yeah yeah i, I think that's just the way i idolized him i mean yeah. i myself didn't have to work with him one-on-one -on -one very much we only had like one scene where we were in at the same time other than that like i just mostly saw him from afar yeah pretty crazy though yeah and you've also worked with eddie murphy mm -hmm. right and yeah. how did that one come about? That one came about basic straight up audition. So after when I got the Arnold Schwarzenegger thing, I used that to help me nail down an agent. And then once I nailed down an agent, it was just a hop, skip and a jump to get more auditions because that's what the agent wants because they, they make money by getting yeah. auditions. And then I auditioned for... What was the director's name of the Eddie Murphy movie? He was also the same guy who directed Trimmers. Ron something. Ah, what's his last name? Do you remember the movie Trimmers with the giant worms? 
Yeah, but uh, I'm blanking on the. Well, okay. I mean, well, it'll come up anyway. So he was a great, he was a really fun guy to work with. And, but then I auditioned for him and it took me, I think just like two auditions and then they right. awarded me the role. Oh, uh, Ron Underwood. Ron Underwood. Oh, Ron Underwood. Okay. It took me two auditions and they were awarded me the role. And the next thing you know, I was flying off to Montreal to shoot laser guns. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you were having this career, which was unusual. You know, you get sprung into from one thing into another, and you're doing some films and some big films. What about the satire, the writing for, you know, the cartooning? How did those things kind of come about? Well, the cartooning came about. So my career was going along and then. At one point, I got really tired of just being cast as the weird guy. And then so I started working a lot behind the scenes. I started writing. I started producing. I started doing anything I could to show that I was more than just a pretty face. You know know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then so so then one year, it was like seven years ago, I I woke up. I mean, in life, I woke up and I was producing love and hip hop, a love and some of the love, some of the love and hip hop franchise for VH1. And I was like, this is garbage. Why am I making garbage television? Uh, Because I was just putting more on the pile of just like, you know, just crappy reality TV for America. And I was like, there's got to be something more that I can do with my life. I think I've lost my way. And the, so then I, made a clear decision. I mean, I'm going to be honest. So at that time I was like, I don't want to bum anybody out, but at the time I was like, I was so depressed and I was like, I should kill myself. And then I did not kill myself, obviously. But after I had that thought, I was like, okay, I'm not going to kill myself, but what can I do to, because what do people want when they, want to kill themselves like what are they going for what is the goal that they think they're going to get and i think the thing that people think they're going to get is freedom yeah so people think that if they kill themselves they'll be free of all the pressures of life and so i was like okay i want to be free and i want to be happy i don't want to kill myself how can i get that without killing myself and the decision i made was that I was going to have a very clear idea about what I want to do with my life. And then I was going to find a way to deal with my anxiety because anxiety is a thing that keeps you back and keeps you in those positions that you don't like and keeps you at jobs that you hate. Anxiety and fear do that. And so I figured out a way to deal with my anxiety and fear. And one of the things that I did when I wanted to do with my when I deal with my anxiety and fear is like I would say if they're is something that I want to do. And the only reason that I'm not doing that thing is because of anxiety and fear. If I can't think of another reason besides anxiety and fear why I'm not doing something, then I would just do it. And so that's how I became a New Yorker cartoonist because I always wanted to be a New Yorker cartoonist. I always thought I was good enough. I'd never really tried. So seven years ago, I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to be a New Yorker cartoonist. And Hundreds of cartoons later, (laughs) (laughs) 
I became a New York cartoonist. And I actually didn't even want to call myself a New York cartoonist until I'd sold two. Because I wanted, uh-huh. you know, one could be a fluke. Yeah. But I wanted to sell a couple. So basically, seven years ago, I just decided I was going to do it. And I just started working on it. That's fantastic. I mean, it is true. And on this show, you know, it's interesting. I started this podcast with the idea of kind of an, you know, the laugh in the face of reality attitude, but I didn't know what the, who the guests would be in it. You know, I hadn't thought that all through when I started recording and I started bringing on guests and hearing their stories. They were so powerful and, you know, they might deal with suicide or addiction or, you know, the most serious and weighty and heavy subjects. And I didn't even know if, if I like, I'm, I was like, you know, I'm kind of like a comedian commenting on life. I'm not, I don't know. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a, you know, I, am I out of my depth? But I realized very quickly that, you know, these are some of the most important things to talk about. And it always comes down to fear. You know, the fear of not being good enough or the fear of not being able to overcome certain things. You know, I love the idea that the thing wasn't, I didn't want, it wasn't that I wanted to die. It was that I wanted to be free, you Uh know, is fantastic. Because the truth is that's a lot of us forget even in day-to-day work that we're not doing it for this tight. I'm not doing this thing so that I can make my boss happy, let's say, you know, although that's what's right in front of my face, that I got to make the boss happy or I got to sell this piece that I'm creating or I have to make this deal. It's what's beyond that. Speaking of which, so you became a New Yorker cartoonist. Uh-huh. And did this go kind of like hand in hand with right with writing for magazines, writing, you know, for mad or, you know, writing articles? No, it was actually very different paths for each. Okay. And writing for like Vice and Salon and those things were really just the same way that I did the New Yorker where I just kept submitting and kept getting better and submitting and submitting. That's what I did with the writing as well for the magazines, because my goal is, well, when I decided what I wanted to do, I knew that I needed to build up my name and build up who I was because the, the more that people have confidence in me and what I'm doing, the easier it is for me to like snatch that dream that I have at Mm -hmm. the end. And so realize that a shortcut to getting there is using other people's clout. So becoming a New Yorker cartoonist means that everything else for the rest of my life is easier Uh because I can say I'm a New Yorker cartoonist and writing for big publications, same thing. Everything else in your life is easier. So I started kind of like collecting badges, you know, to make the rest of my life easier. I started putting my effort in doing things with large, large brands, because the amount of time that it takes to write an article for a large brand is very similar to the amount of time it takes to go out and do a bunch of bar shows as a stand-up comedian. Yeah. But the difference is then your, your article comes out in vice instead of you've just performed for 30 people. Yeah. And so I decided to change how I was spending my time. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that, that we also kind of get sucked into doing what, like we can conquer something like doing standup is not an easy feat. It takes 
a lot of time and dedication to get really great at it. Uh-huh. But you, once you are competent, let's say as a stand-up comedian, you know, you might just be doing, trying to get stage time, but what does it really get you? You know, if you like it and it's satisfying, that's great, but it's not, you know, doing a, a bar show in Thousand Oaks or something isn't going to like change your life or visibility materially. So you're right. One great credit, you know, and the being on Jimmy Kimmel or something is also great and get a badge, you know, but at some point you have to decide what you want to do with the visibility you have, which is a good problem to have, you know? So this latest book, the anti-racism activity book, tell us a little bit about that. If you would. The anti-racism activity book is a, it's kind of like a highlights magazine style book. It's a kind of a spoof of a highlights magazine, Yeah, but it deals with all jokes about how stupid racism is. That's the whole book, just over and over. D- great jokes about how stupid racism is, which I think most people can agree with. And so yeah. <laughs> it started actually back in 2020 with the murder of George Floyd. And so when George Floyd was murdered, I made a cartoon that got bought by the New Yorker, and then it became one of the most shared cartoons from the New Yorker that year. It blew up on the internet, like Questlove shared it, Viola Davis shared it. And then so I kept making cartoons about the state of racism in the U.S. And then that eventually became a book. And then the book, I wanted to not make just a regular book of cartoons. I thought it would be interesting to make an activity book like the Highlights magazines when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. By the way. It's very hard to make a magazine full of puzzles that are also subtle jokes about racism. (laughs) It's a lot of work. Yeah. But I did it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, let's talk about, you know, what's the last several years and racism and the temperature of the of you know, the world, because it's not really just the United States. It's everywhere that there are various, you know, problems and polarization and so forth. What's it been like from your perspective, you know, looking at the world the last few years? From my perspective, the world makes me sad about racism just because, well, the simple fact about the world is that there's so many things that are wrong. And most people that you talk to are reasonable. Like you can talk to one person most of the time and you can have a reasonable conversation. Or even if you disagree, you could have a reasonable conversation. But the internet and groups of people and the way people are polarized most of the time is the problem. And so the more people you get together, the harder it is for people to just get along. And so it seems like things are just getting worse and that's too bad. And I wish that they weren't. And so that's how I feel about the world. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I can't put on you the onus of like, you know, of of fixing it, you know, and I, but I do think it's what's distressing to see is also that with polarization comes this kind of irrational, you know, behavior reaction to stuff so that, I think the licentiousness on the extremes gets even worse by people digging into their position and not 
listening to the other person. So they'll embrace an even more ridiculous position than they might otherwise, because it's in opposition to their opponent, so to speak. So it's like, wherever I have to go to be opposed to the other side, I'll go. That's what seems to happen with these extreme, extreme positions. People, when people get their hackles up about certain things, they don't want a solution. They just want to be mad and they want to yell at each other. I've seen that so many times. In fact, once there was a big problem with, I think it was the Laughing Skull Comedy Festival. And so I I think this may have happened in 2021 or 22. The Laughing Skull Comedy Festival, it may have been earlier than that. The Laughing Skull Comedy Festival in Atlanta, they announced their lineup and they had no black women in their lineup in Atlanta. And so a lot of people were really upset. However, the Laughing Skull Comedy Festival, they did, I think, blind voting. And so they were like, we tried to be as fair as we possibly could. It wasn't our fault that, you know, the black women did not get into the festival. But then like the rest of the world was like, you know, fuck you guys, you know, but that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. And so the comedy festival, of course, was then like, they got mad too. Yeah. And the, and people were not being cool to one another. And then I wrote an open letter to the comedy festival, which is still out there. If you, if you, I think if you search for an open letter to the laughing skull laughing comedy skull. festival, you'll find it. And yeah. what I wrote and my name maybe will help. And what I wrote was basically, I, I said to them, hey, you, I know that you guys tried and I get that, but why not just do something good? Just add some women to the comedy festival. Just like, who cares? Like, just do it. Just add some, you know, everybody would be happy. You would be happier if there were women, black women in the comedy festival. So would the rest of the world. You're the one who have who have the ability to change it. They can't change it from outside. You can change from inside. And I know you haven't been given credit for all the hard work you've done. I get it. And it sucks that people are treating you like that. I understand. But just do it. Yeah. They did. Yeah. I don't know if it was because of my letter. I know a lot of people read it, but I don't know if it was because of my letter, but I know that they did. Right. They did just add people to the festival. That's what they did. Yeah. I mean, how do you combat, you know, when there's, so much kind of built up resentment and, you know, rightfully so, you know, from between peoples, right? Between cultures, between, you know, in countries, when there's so much antagonism that's built up that it's carried over into the present where people, let's say, are trying to get along or trying or don't harbor the views that a previous generation Harvard, you know, I mean, fortunately, at least with my kids, I see, even though the world is in this weird position, I see them growing up like without some of the divides that, you know, that I saw as a kid, you know, where it seems like in a way there's kids today have progressed already are like born into a more progressive way of thinking. And so they don't even have a lot of the hangups that that older people have. But when it's stuff that's like built up over generations, you know, do you have a, like a thought about about how to go forth into the world 
with so much history behind it. Maybe that's a way to say it. I feel that there, for me, there's no right way to do anything. I know how I do things. Yeah. I know how I do things and I know how I approach people, but I also know that, you know, everybody's different and it's a case by case basis. Like if you're dealing with one person and if you're just trying to deal with the world, for me, I just try to make sure that I'm not misinterpreted. That's, that's the thing that I feel as a comedian is one of the biggest things. Like I try as hard as I can to make sure I'm not misinterpreted. I think that right now there's a lot of people who are out there doing jokes and they are saying to themselves, Hey, I'm making a joke and I can make a joke about whatever I want. And because it's a joke, chill. And I don't think that's enough as a comedian. For me, I think that it's part of your job to be understood. So like if you're making a joke and it is like an ironically racist joke, then be good enough so people can tell it's an ironically racist joke. Like communicate right. what your point is. Because your point is not to be racist, but if that's what people are getting, then maybe you're not communicating it quite well. <laughs> I yeah. Just, I just, I feel like there is this world where there's some people who are like, I can joke about anything. I'm a comedian. And some people are like some things absolutely cannot be joked about. Neither of those are true. The truth is somewhere in the middle, <laughs> but it's just that again, it's polarizing. Yeah. Yeah. It's the intent is so important. I feel in comedy, but it's not always, you made a really good point in that. It's not always clear. My intent could be totally, you know, pure and kind and come from a good place. If it's misunderstood and I don't somehow make it understood, then it doesn't matter what my intent is. So I think that's an important qualification. So other than the book, so what's going on? What's next? Is there something in the works that our audience should keep an eye out for, be aware of, or? Sure. I've got a podcast that I have right now, which I'm really excited about. It's pretty crazy. It's called Wiki Listen. It's a podcast where me and my co-host, we read Wikipedia pages every day. <laughs> and then we just comment on the Wikipedia pages. And we read like very weird Wikipedia pages because there's Wikipedia pages for everything. Today, we worked on a, we read a Wikipedia page and the Wikipedia page was called Blowing a Raspberry. You know that? Blowing yeah. a Raspberry? Where you're just yeah. like, yeah, there's a Wikipedia yeah. page about it. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And it's unclaimed, probably. There's nobody. There's nobody to claim the 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 raspberry blowing wiki page as their own. Oh no, there's people out there who have who edited it, and oh, there we you go. can see who's edited it and who wrote it. You can see everybody. You can see awesome. everything. But there's all of these just crazy, crazy pages, and really interesting too. Some are very interesting. I I was surprised. One of my favorite Wikipedia pages was one called Ferret Legging. Ferret legging happens in Australia. Do you know about this? Do you know what ferret no. legging is? Should I? Would I really have? Did you expect me to know? <laughs> well, I mean, you made a face, and I thought maybe you knew oh. what it was because if you you heard I it, was, you won't. For, you heard it, you I, won't forget it. Yeah, I was processing what it could possibly mean. But go ferret ahead. Legging. Let's hear it. Ferret legging is a sport in Australia, and how it works is you have a pair of baggy pants, and you stick a ferret in your pants, and then the person who can last the longest with the ferret in their pants wins. Rules of ferret legging are the pants must be baggy 
They must be tied at the bottom. The ferret must have sharp teeth and claws. You and the ferret must have easy access to your genitals. That's part of the okay. rules. All right. And well, that goes right there on the, <laughs> of the list of activities I'm glad I don't engage in. It reminds me of, do you ever see the movie With Nail and I? Uh, with Nail and I? With Nail and I. It's, uh, it's a British comedy. It's uh, written and directed by Bruce Robinson um, with, uh, 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 I can't remember the other actor's name, but okay. But anyway, they're British, they're actors in, in, in 1969 London and uh, they're starving as mm-hmm. as actors and they go to the country to get away from the city and they see a guy sitting at the bar of a pub with an eel in his trousers he's <laughs> got he's got an eel like they he's he he's checking it and he puts it back in his pants not in his pocket and they go one guy says to him well, what's that in you your trousers and he says there's nothing in my trousers of interest to you <laughs> and, and then he then he takes it out and he kills it on the bar and he puts it back in his pants and it's just a so that's the image that got conjured up and i was like oh is that a ferret in that movie no it's an eel anyway well listen victor this has been wonderful i really appreciate your coming on are there any thoughts that you want to leave the audience with to have the last word as they try to, as I always put it, survive and thrive in a world that is fraught with all kinds of bullshit, like we've touched on only a smidge of it. So any advice you can give the listeners? Yeah, uh, very simple. Nothing is sacred because everything is stupid. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.